wish I knew how it would feel to be free. Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. Today on Voices, we have three segments. On the first segment, Eric will be reading and talking about his review of Oppenheimer, a film that just came out this weekend. And he'll be talking about the implications for today's movement and the history that Oppenheimer chronicles. In the second segment of Voices from the Frontlines, We're going to have an interesting cultural piece in which we listen to three separate versions of Ed Sheeran's perfect song. Um, As you remember, Eric sang that song uh, to his wife, Leanne Hurstman, on Voices from the Frontlines back in March. And so we'll start with that version. But then we hear two more versions, one as a duet with Beyonce and another as a duet with Andrea Bocelli. So tune in and stay tuned um, to enjoy this conversation. As you know, we're not in Fun Drive, but Voices from the Front Lines is always looking to support KPFK. So you can call right now, 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. So hello everyone, this is Eric Mann, you're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. I'm going to do a review of just one of the most astounding films I've ever seen in my whole life called Oppenheimer by Christopher Nolan. And I wrote Oppenheimer, so glad to be ecstatic about a film. And this is a long review about a long film. Channing Martinez is just going to read you some of the many other titles of films that Christopher Nolan has produced, and then I'll tell you more about uh, Oppenheimer. So the film is by Christopher Nolan, and he's done... I I noticed that there's a pattern in some of his films and the way that he does his films. They're very dynamic and dramatic. And so the first one that comes to mind when Eric described uh, this new film to me was The Dark Knight, because it dives into so much psychology but so he did the dark knight he did interstellar he did oppenheimer which uh eric is gonna about to talk about inception memento the prestige insomnia and so many more this is a national emergency detonator charge in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. If we don't let scientists bring their families, we'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... You can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. This is a matter of life and death. I can perform this miracle. World War II would be over. Our boys would come home. That's happening, isn't it? 
world will remember this day. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Until somebody builds a bigger one. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Truman needs to know what's next. Two. What's next? One. Well, you got to see it. The film's called Oppenheimer. Uh, my wife Leanne and I saw it the first day it opened at the IMAX at the uh, Gorman's Chinese Theater. And it's almost beyond words. Um, I'm going to... I have words, that's what I do, I speak and write. So I'm going to read you a draft, I am submitting this to my good editor, uh, Jeffrey St. Clair, who's expecting it, uh, but I'm getting you a rough draft, because I just wanted to talk to you and I wanted to talk out loud, and I was up to about 2 o'clock in the morning writing, so here I go. So thank God Christopher Nolan has hit the ball out of the park. I put Oppenheimer as one of the finest political films of all time on my list with Battle of Algiers, Reds, and the spook who sat by the door. It's as close to flawless history as I've seen. It's the story of a great scientist, Robert Oppenheimer, who was close to the Communist Party, not a member but a friend, worked for the Spanish Civil War, which was code for the Communist Party, worked to organize a union of scientists, and was most known as the father of the atomic bomb. In the last great scene in this three-hour film, Oppenheimer and Einstein, Albert Einstein, are talking. Einstein tells him, as he is now being red-baited and villainized, proposing the nuclear project he began, that is Oppenheimer. They will punish you, then time will pass. And then when they no longer fear you, they will bring you back and give you a medal. But remember, they're doing it for themselves, not you. Oppenheimer tells Einstein, you know, when I first talked to you about the atom bomb, I told you the worst possible outcome was that it would start a chain reaction that could blow up the world. But he meant that the single bomb was so powerful, like the meteor that came before it, that it could literally trigger a series of explosions in other parts of the physics of the world, including oxygen. But now, looking at the arms race and U.S. Imperials' lead in it, reflected in a great scene where Oppenheimer argues that the greatest achievement of the bomb would be to create a nuclear disarmament movement where all nations agree not to build it and use it. And Truman says, no, this is the start of a whole new expansion of our weapons to take over the world. And as Oppenheimer leaves, Truman says, don't ever bring that crybaby into my office again. So Robert Oppenheimer, who was thinking he built a bomb to defeat Nazi Germany, ended up having it used against Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. And then when he tried to get it banned from any other future use, the United States says, oh no, this is just the beginning, and accused him of being a communist agent and drove him out of the uh, Atomic Energy Commission in disgrace. So a lot of what I'm going to talk to you about is how U.S. imperialism, and I want you to listen carefully, is fundamentally a fascist country. I disagree with people that are now acting like fascism is something new because they're in with the Democratic Party and they want to make MAGA fascism instead of the United States fascism. 
But one of the things you'll see in this review and my reading of history is that the United States went into World War II not quite unwillingly, but at the last minute, did not want to go to war with the Nazis. In fact, were hoping that the Nazis would kill the Soviet Union. And only when they saw that the Nazis might take over all of Europe did the United States come in and fight against the Nazis. But let's be very clear, and here's a big part of this film. The U.S. communists and their friends, like Robert Oppenheimer, believed that they were in a fight against Hitler. Little did they know that right after the war, almost literally after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the United States would in fact go to war with the Soviet Union, who had been its greatest allies in this war, who sacrificed 26 million people to win World War II against the Nazis, only to rehabilitate the Nazis in Germany and the rehabilitated Nazis in Japan under what's called the Marshall Plan, and use that against the Soviet Union to come back to the United States and attack Paul Robeson, attack W.B. Du Bois, attack all the artists, attack the Hollywood Ten, and attack Robert Oppenheimer himself. This is just an ugly double-cross country. The Native Americans understand that the best. This is a country based on broken promises. So I'm going to tell you more about the film. So I'm working on a book. It's called I Saw a Revolution with My Own Eyes, History, Strategy, and Organizing for the Revolution We Need Today. I've actually almost finished it. I have an agent. It's flying into the stratosphere looking for a publisher who wants it. And I'll let you know when that publisher appears. But in my book, I talk a lot about the long revolution, 1793 and Haiti, and the turning point, the Russian Revolution of 1917, the first anti-imperialist revolution. And you can see my article in Counterpunch on the 150th, the 105th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Now, through the rise of the communist movement throughout the world, the magnificent work of the Communist Party in the U.S. from the 1920s to the 1960s, including the great breakthroughs in its work on the Afro-American national question, its leadership of the black liberation struggle and building the CIO, they helped to build the revolution we saw with our own eyes. And the United States worked to destroy it. So then I go into the brilliant... I'm sorry, the, the brutal counter-revolution against our great anti-imperialist revolution, 1980 to the present, reflected in the election of Margaret Thatcher in England in 1979 and Ronald Reagan in 1980. I argue that the counter-revolution infiltrated movement organizations, assassinated black and movement leaders, and through a COINTELPRO, destroyed many of the finest organizations of the last resistance the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords Party, and the American Indian Movement. But sadly, and this is about the film Oppenheimer, the greatest victory of the counter-revolution goes beyond its draconian dictatorial changes in policies and institutions. The system's real victory has been the caricature, denigration, and erasure of the revolutionary movement's history. See, if you kill the leaders, new leaders can come forward. If you kill the organizations, new organizations can be built. But the system hopes that if you kill the history of all the achievements of the revolution and all the crimes of imperialism, you can convince the people that there's no alternative to capitalism and greed, then the people are left without an ideological anchor, a sense of their own history and hope, and they go back on their cell phones. Now, I said in my book, this book will set the record straight and represent the movement's spectacular historical achievements to so many people who would be so thrilled to learn it. That's what Christopher Nolan did. He reconstructed the revolutionary record. He took a guy that almost nobody knows about today. Who's Robert and Oppenheimer? What did he do? Oh, he built a bomb or blah, blah, blah. This film shows how the United States used the nuclear program in Los Alamos 
essentially, as I'll get to, against the Soviet Union and not against Germany. So the first part of the film is, was Robert Armenheimer a communist? Because he's put through horrible trials at the end of the film. There's a long series of sequence where he's, <clears throat> his uh, clearance at the Atomic Energy Commission is being reviewed. And he's attacked ferociously for being a communist. And to our listeners out there, this is one of the most important things I want to tell you. Millions of people in the 1930s were communists. And we have to redefine what it meant by being a communist because for most people it did not mean being in the Communist Party. So when they brought people up and said, are you now or ever have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A lot of people said no, but it wasn't completely true because the Communist Party involved so many friends, so many allies, that what they were getting at is, did you support communism? And if that was the question, I'm telling you, maybe tens of millions of people supported communism during the 1930s and 1940s. And this is relevant to the film. Okay. The enormous reach of the U.S. Communist Party and its friends and allies, millions of the most dedicated, effective revolutionaries. Oppenheimer was accused of being a communist. Now, contrary to the, no, I never was. In fact, communists went beyond actual party membership to people who willingly and with respect worked with the CPUSA and the United Front organizations. To say Oppenheimer gave money to the Spanish Civil War veterans, which he did, is code for communists who led the international struggle to defend loyalist Spain from France, Franco and the fascists, supported by Hitler and Mussolini and not opposed at all by Roosevelt, who was an anti-communist and conciliated with fascism only until he grasped the threat to the U.S. empire. Hitler would not coexist with anyone, so that's what forced Roosevelt into the war. The communists were leaders in the trade union movement, Note that Oppenheimer supported a trade union for scientists, but it must be understood that from 1932 or so until well into the 1950s, the leading Negro, trade union, cultural artists, from Picasso to Hemingway to Lena Horne, W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, were friends of the Soviet Union and the CPUSA. Do you think that U.S. imperialism after World War II, led by Harry Truman and a bipartisan Cold War unity, cared about who was in or out of the Communist Party's official membership. The Taft-Hartley law said that communists could not hold union office. Do you think a right-wing trade unionist like Walter Ruther gave a damn about who of his communist and pro-communist opponents were in or out of the party? Paul Robeson, W.B. Du Bois, the two greatest intellectuals and evolved human beings of their time, were trapped inside the U.S. as the black nation is, because the U.S. revoked their passports, not for being communist, but being as friends of the Soviet Union. The point is that at that period in time, if you were a friend of the Soviet Union, you could be put in prison. If you had been in a union with communists, which Oppenheimer, you could be losing your job. If you bought a communist newspaper, you could lose your job. <clears throat> and as I'll say in the film, as you see, Robert Oppenheimer was very close to the Communist Party. So I'll give you an example. I think that Nolan in the book was very accurate but did not make it clear that Oppenheimer was closer to the Communist Party. Now, Oppenheimer said in the film he was a Roosevelt Democrat, but many of them were also close to the CPUSA. He had an affair with Gene Tatlock, who in the film was a CPUSA member and tried to recruit Oppenheimer into the party which he refused. He married Kitty Harrison, who in the film under questioning said she did not remember when she left the party, 1937-1938, but again, she was a pro-communist. Often the CPUSA, especially with allies, called fellow travelers by the right, protected their close allies, like Oppenheimer, by specifically telling them not to join the party for their own safety. They were too prominent and more helpful to the party as close friends. So here's the point. I think Nolan does a good job of portraying Oppenheimer as, on one hand, a Roosevelt Democrat, 
but also as a friend of the Communist Party. I don't think Robert Oppenheimer really wanted to join the Communist Party. That wasn't the point. He was, in the good sense, too individualistic. He was a very, very famous physicist. Uh, but he, all the parties he was at, I mean, like in the social parties, were with communists. And that became his downfall. But not just his associations, but he changed his mind on the very atom bomb that he had built. So the point was, any sympathy for the Soviet Union, any opposition to the Cold War was communist enough for the Democrats and Republicans. It must be understood that at its height, millions of people were in the broad democratic movements in which communists played a very positive role. To the system and the truth, they were all communists. You know, there's a story in the movement that there's a union picket line, and a policeman is bringing up, beating up a worker, saying, you damn communist, you damn communist. So the worker defending himself says, no, officer, I'm an anti-communist. And the cop says, I don't care what kind of communist you are, and keeps beating him. If some confuse the policing system or not. Now, another thing in the film is the struggle of people in high places to find integrity in a world they do not control. So what people don't understand is that I know it better from the 60s. Um, a lot of people went to graduate school and they uh, protest against the war and they stood up and condemned their department. The next thing they know, they were kicked out of graduate school. A lot of black people stood up and said, this system is racist and the union is racist. The union got together with the company and they lost a job. A lot of people took tremendous risks, like Oppenheimer. But when you wake up in the morning, you are both a graduate student and a protester. You're both a black man who has a job, or a black woman who has a job, and a protester. You're stuck inside of a system in which you don't expect the worst things to happen to you. I mean, you know something's going to happen, but it always happens worse than what you thought. So Oppenheimer took enormous risks, and he went through a process where he believed that building this bomb was going to defeat Nazi Germany, and I'm going to tell you that story in a minute. There's a scene where the bomb finally goes off because it's very frightening whether or not it's going to go off or not. And it does go off in Hiroshima, and there's this enormous mushroom cloud, and many more people are killed, it says in the film, than who were originally just hit by the bomb. And for that moment, Oppenheimer is happy. Everybody's happy. I mean, we built the bomb to end the war. But when he gets up there, he says, I'm really happy about this, but I wish we didn't drop it on Japan. I wish we had dropped it on Germany which is what the intention was. So let me explain this for a minute. There was a legitimate fear that Germany had an atom bomb or was in the process of building it that would be used against the United States and England and Russia. Therefore, the United States correctly tried to build... an atom bomb as a deterrent, as a preemptive bomb that would drop on top of Germany before Germany killed us. Many of the people in the Los Alamos program were friends of the Soviet Union, which Nolan does not do a good job of explaining. Um, they were not just supporting FDR. They saw the war going on right then between Russia and Germany. They saw Russia defeating Germany. And in other films about nuclear programs, uh, such as Red Joan, the scientists are saying, why is the United States not giving this nuclear secret to the Russians? Because if the Russians are fighting Germany, and the Russians are our big ally, 
why would you not give information on that weapon to the Russians? And of course, the answer is because the United States planned to use the bomb against Russia and did not want Russia to have a nuclear bomb. So after Germany surrendered, and it's in the film, people are saying, so why do we need to use the bomb now? We won the war. But Japan had still not surrendered. And the Soviet Union had not gone to war with Japan, if you can imagine that. They tried to be neutral with Japan because they were fighting Germany and Italy, and they couldn't fight on both fronts. But with Germany defeated, Stalin and the Soviets were going to move into um, Japan. And the United States was very afraid of that because they didn't want the Russians to help take over Japan. There's plenty of books um, about how the Japanese were willing to surrender. And there were negotiations going on. And the United States did not want Japan to surrender. The United States wanted to show that they could use this bomb. So why? Because they were trying to tell the Soviet Union that as soon as Japan surrenders, this bomb will be used against you. So it's a miracle that so many friends of the Communist Party held out and held out so bravely. But in the 1960s, wait, I'm sorry, I'm just stopping here because I want to get more, of course, to the film. You've been very nice to... So people grow up wanting to be someone. In Oppenheimer's case, he was a brilliant physics professor and a great organizer. Now, when Leslie Groves, played great by Matt Damon, uses Oppenheimer's brilliant organizational and people skills, he chooses him to head up the entire Los Alamos project. Now, he asks Oppenheimer about possible communist sympathies, but is easily persuaded because he knows Oppenheimer is the only person for the job. And at this point, when the Soviet Union is a tactical ally, using communists by trade union officials, government officials, the U.S. Army, who would later claim they were duped, is a lie. Grove knew that Oppenheimer was a leftist, and the film even admired him for that, for a moment. And there was affection and respect for him, uh, Graves being a, a military guy. But at the hearing, after the trial commission rewrites the guidelines for membership at the AEC, Grove was asked, if these were the rules, would you have hired Oppenheimer? Now, an apparently ambivalent Grove says no, but clearly states that they changed the rules of the game. When I hired him, all his leftist sympathies, I didn't have to investigate that much. But nor does he adamantly defend Oppenheimer, who was the very same person he hired. Again, communists were used and discarded. How can one at the height of the war against Germany and Japanese fascism, that the Soviet Union is a tactical ally, would be vilified. See, so many U.S. communists actually believe the fairy tale that after the war, Roosevelt and Stalin would remain good friends and allies, and both nations would work for an anti-fascist world. Now, in retrospect, that was a cruel hoax. But God, can't people believe something good would come out of the sacrifices? Many U.S. communists truly loved America, and Earl Browder said communism is 20th century Americanism which, of course, it was not. But it spoke to deep feelings, even among the Negro militants, that America had the promise to be reformed through communist civilizing influences. Again, it was not naive, as much as no one could have grasped the cynicism of Eisenhower Truman, who knew from the beginning, in fact, that German fascism was their long-term ally. Now, Cillian Murphy, one of the most captivating actors of our time, Check out Peaky Blinders as a brilliant portrayal of an Irish gang leader, which is a series on Netflix. That's when I first Cillian Murphy, what an amazing, amazing actor, carries the film. His charisma, character, brilliant mind are clearly, whether method or not, method actor, when an actor inhabits the character rather than playing him or her. By the way, there's a trope by some of the pro-Israeli people that said Nolan should have hired a Jewish actor to play Oppenheimer, who was a Jew. Well, that's ridiculous. Now, when Al Jolson, who was a Jew, sang in blackface, 
Very few Jews protest that the job should go to blacks to humiliate themselves. Syrian is a very Jewish man in my eyes, as Jewish as Oppenheimer. Now, the two conversations with Einstein frame the film. In the first, Oppenheimer clearly fears that the nuclear explosion could set off a chain reaction. In the end, understand it not literally caused it instantly. He understands that once out of the bottle, the nuclear weapons and mentality would be hardwired into the U.S. psyche, forcing the rest of the world to arm itself against the U.S. attack. Einstein tells Oppenheimer, after they destroy you, they will see you as harmless. They will rehabilitate you, honor you, or remember. It is only for themselves. What an incredible film. Every scene is magnificent, and the three hours went by in a nuclear flash. And it ends with a quote from Oppenheimer from the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am death, destroyer of worlds. And very sadly, Oppenheimer's daughter died of suicide, another reflection of the collateral damage of the anti-communists. So at the end of the film, you, you see a very broken Oppenheimer who doesn't know what hit him. I mean, he was on the cover of Time magazine, the father of the atom bomb. And two years later, he was a, a communist who was working for the Soviet Union, who was working against the United States. This happened, it happened to thousands and thousands of people. But the film shows the brutality of the system that turns even on the people who helped it win the war and uses people and spits them out. In this draft, I don't think I'm doing full justice to the brilliance of the film, but thank you for listening. I've learned a lot by reading it out loud, and I'll make it better by the time it gets to Counterpunch. Any thoughts on it, Jane? I think the first thing is that it's scary. Right. Um, I mean, that, that trailer, I know everyone was getting to listen to it, but I was watching it as it played on YouTube, and you see every facial expression, every bomb going off every minute, and every frightened about whether the bomb is going to go off, and negotiations and and just like what you just said in the in the end of your review you see the transition even in the trailer between someone who is really uh enthusiastic and full-hearted and starts off being this really great person thinking he's doing a good thing and in the last minute of the trailer they see a face and you you see his face and uh, I think the voice says something like, you're responsible. Right. And just him having to face that, that, oh, my God, what have I done? And that's, it's just, wow, it's scary. And, you know, there's a scene in there where he says to Truman, the best thing came out of the bomb as we saw how horrible it was, so we'll never do it again. And Truman says, get out of here. No, 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 we're going to do it over and over again. So he tried to make sense of his life by saying he had used the bomb to defeat the Japanese and end the war against the fascists. And then he essentially became an anti-nuclear organizer. And they humiliated him, and they broke him. And one reason they broke him, and I want to do more work on this, I mean, even at the end, broke Paul Robeson. You have to say, I mean, uh, Paul Robeson, how could you understand you're the most famous person in the world making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars back then, loved by everybody, loved during the war, and they turn on you? How do you understand that you're the father of the atomic bomb and you're on the cover of Time, and two years later? So... Oppenheim never recovered. I'm reading there's a book about him. I want to read more. He went basically into hiding and felt disgraced. Nobody wanted to touch him during that whole Cold War. And then right at the end, of course, they rehabilitated everybody, but most of the people were broken or dead. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the, I don't know how to call it, but they're good at chess. I mean, yeah. one one of the moves that I always lose at chess is that 
I move very quickly and then I get surrounded by the other side. And then once you're surrounded, you know, you just have that one piece and they start peeling off, peeling off. By the end of the game, sometimes it's as long as an hour or two or as short as five minutes. But by the end of the game, what you have is a couple of pawns. And right. as you know, if you play chess, you can only move upon one move at a time. Right. So there is no, I mean, you're talking, if you had to put that into human time, 25 years before you can even ever recover your army and recover your side, your ideological side of the debate, right? And so uh, I think what I got out of your film most is, you know, in thinking about the resurgence of, of you know, everyone moving towards fascism, as you said, as you began with, right, including the Democratic Party, but most especially uh, Trump and Trumpism, you know, it, it speaks to so much more of the importance of how do we build actual movements, um, if that makes sense. Not I scratch your back, you scratch my back, but actual movements that you can avoid being, you know, basically surrounded by the system, which most of us are right now. Well, you know, if we had all the resources that we wanted, we would leaflet up and down. That's what we used to do. See, we go to these films. I mean, this is an amazing film, folks. I want to tell you that it is something to change history. It shows the Democrats. It shows how cutthroat they are. Uh, and back in the day, we would get a flyer and say, um, come protest against the war in Vietnam. You saw this film. Come to the Bus Riders Union. Or even put out a, you know, maybe I'll take this review and hand it out to people like a crazy person in front of a theater, you know. Want to read my review? No, thank you. No, this is really great. Trust me. But we got to do something with this. I mean, Christopher Nolan has made a great, amazing contribution to history. And this is uh, a revolutionary film in rewriting history on our behalf. I found a love for me. Well, darling, just dive right in. So, hey, everybody, this is Eric Mann. I'm in the studio with Chani Martinez. We're hosts of Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. I got some very nice calls lately about my singing. Somebody said they really liked my duet with Jerry Butler. It wasn't Jerry Butler who called, which I would love, but it still was a nice thing. And I've just been singing on the show because I like singing. And uh, hey, if it's your show, you can sing. So there's a song I love, which you know by now, it's called Perfect by Ed Sheeran. And I did sing it to my wife, Leanne, on the air. But I listened to that song so many different ways. So I thought... It's interesting to listen to interpretations of the song. So I thought I would play myself first because I don't want to follow the stars. But afterwards, we're then going to play the same song in a duet between the author or the writer and the singer Ed Sheeran and Beyonce. Then we're going to play the song a third time in a duet between Ed Sheeran and Andrea Bocelli, the amazing Italian tenor, I believe. And what I find interesting about this is when I'm on my uh, Pandora, if I like a song, I play it over and over and over again. But this is interesting because you hear three interpretations of the same song. And what the hell? It's early in the morning, do something original. So let us know what you think. Eric at Voices from the Frontlines, Channing at Voices from the Frontlines, we're trying to do original programming. And it means a lot when you write back. So, Peggy, thank you for telling me that you like the Jerry Butler duet. And stay in touch, everybody. I found a love for me. A darling, just dive right in. Follow my lead. I found a girl beautiful and sweet. 
His song, of course, perfect, in a duet with the great Beyonce. I found a love for me. Well, darling, just dive right in. Follow my lead. Well, I found a girl. Kids when we fell in love Not knowing what it was I will not give you up this time well, Darling, just kiss me slow Your heart is all I own 
Voices from the front lines, your national moving building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. We had a good time yesterday. Channing and I, in case you didn't know it, do a lot of stuff together. We're co directors of the Strategy Center. We co hosted a radio show. And we had a great time yesterday to honor our friend Michelle Pritchard, who, if you can imagine, had been at the Liberty Hill Foundation for 34 years. Michelle and I have been friends for almost 40. My wife Leanne and Michelle and Larry Frank and a group were involved in the nuclear freeze. But what an impressive party. It was, uh, she was originally the director of Liberty Hill, and then, as Tori Osborne said, very few people stay around. And she stayed around in different executive capacities to help Kathy Blumenfeld and Shane Goldsmith. And obviously there's a whole chain of women's leaders over at Liberty Hill. And Liberty Hill is a foundation that gives money to grassroots organizing work. And it's one of the first groups that said the whole point (laughs) of social change is grassroots organizing to change the system. And I'll end with a few things, but I'm very interested in chanting your observations in that scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you've talked about Michelle a lot over the years, especially around the making of the bus raising in film. And uh, one thing I was saying in my reflection is I feel honored to 
see that film and be a part of putting that film out, um, knowing that Michelle was called by Haskell Wexler, who said he wanted to make a film about something revolutionary. And she goes into her Rolodex and says, Eric Mann, best artist yet, revolutionary. So I think that that was one reflection. And I say that as an opening to realize that in hearing all the remarks, not just from Michelle, but from everyone, uh, what you come to realize is that Michelle was really an organizer within the space of a foundation. And but that's one, right? The second thing is that in coming up and organizing in the 1960s, 1970s, you really understand how organizers of that time are able to really put together a whole structure against another racist structure, which I think is one thing I'm trying to figure out how to teach young people today. Yeah, I mean, one thing, uh, and everybody should check her out. One thing about Michelle is that she worked with Barry Commoner, the great Barry Commoner, and in, when I started the Strategy Center in 1989, when we started it, I had just come out of the GM Van Nuys campaign, and I was fighting for more cars in LA, and all of a sudden a guy named Tony Mizaki came up to me and said, who was with the oil, chemical, and atomic workers, but he was fighting for a super fund for workers, saying we should not be producing oil, chemical, and atomic anything, and Eric, you should not be producing those cars. I went, oh my God, no, please, please, don't tell me that. But, you know, sometimes, like Oppenheimer, you have to follow the logic of the truth and let it take you where it's going to take you. So I then became deeply invested in the environmental justice movement. And Michelle Pritchard did so much work. And one thing I want to say about funders is I certainly believe the revolution will be funded. And it's funded by people like Michelle and like Liberty Hill, who get money from wealthy people who say, we want to change the system. And what people should obviously understand is there are some wealthy people who want to change the system and who want to give money to Black and Latinx and Third World movements. And it's ridiculous to say you can't fund the revolution, blah, 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 because all revolutions are funded, and they're often funded by the people who have the most money. And we're not talking about Jeff Bezos and stuff, but we're talking about often people that inherited money. And they don't think great about where the money came from, but they want to use it for good causes. So Michelle, one of the things I was struck by yesterday is how many people said that Michelle just came up to them, and this was a lot of Latina and black organizers, and just said, I'm interested in you. And that's what an organizer does, is... You, you really are a good listener and you hear somebody say something good and then you say, I'd like to hear more about what you have to say. And most people are going, what? And so there were so many people whose lives were touched. And Michelle's been a very, very dear friend of mine for a long time. I don't see her sometimes for every two or three years. And then when we get together, it's just always uh, pretty phenomenal. And I'm working on an article, yes, about Michelle that I'm going to publish in Counterpunch, and she knows about it, and it's going to come out soon. But what a charming evening. I saw Stephen Gutwig, our old friend from the Strategy Center. I saw Anthony Thigpen, Gary Phillips, and Barry Litt, and a lot of people my age, you know, who are still long-distance runners who are doing the job, which would give a lot of confidence to you, Channing, as an up-and-coming real leader. To see that you're, you're around people that have done this 30, 40, 50 years and are still there. And the last thing I'll say is Michelle had a great line where she said, you know, it's not a question of retiring. I hate that word anyway. Uh, she says it's like you're riding a trapeze and if you really want to ride the trapeze, there's another trapeze. you got to jump from one to the other. And in the jump, there's that momentary suspension in the air where you don't know if you're going to catch the other one. And that's part of the fun of experimentation. But then she dropped a little bomb and, oh, by the way, I'm going to be on the national board of Greenpeace. So obviously, Michelle, you already jumped onto your next trapeze, and I hope you will have time to have lunch with me on one of your other trapezes with me and Channing. 
So everybody, it's been a nice show. We've enjoyed you. We're happy to talk about our friends. We'll see you next Tuesday. You're on Voices from the Frontlines. All power to the people. And Nina Simone's going to take us out of here. It's power time. I'm sure you knew.